Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, I'm excited to chat with Dr. Natasha Chaku. Natasha is an assistant professor at the Department of Psychological and Brain Science at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her core research interests involve understanding cognitive development in adolescents, its correlates, and implications of its development for different populations, especially as related to puberty, psychopathology, and positive development. In this episode, we chat about her recent work titled 100 Days of Adolescence, Elucidating Externalizing Behaviors Through the Daily Assessment of Behavioral Control. Natasha took us through a deep dive into the how and the why of studying adolescent cognition. She also shares her journey into studying this period of life. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Um, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I am very excited to talk to you, especially after the amazing Brownback talk you gave earlier this year. Um, so the, today, the paper we are going to talk about is this paper titled 100 Days of Adolescence, Elucidating Externalizing Behaviors Through the Daily Assessment of Inhibitor Control. So I must admit, there seems to be a lot going on in the title. So I wonder if you can just start by unpacking the title a little bit. So maybe we can just start by talking about what is externalizing behaviors and why does it matter? Yeah, so externalizing behaviors generally refer to uh, difficulties that youth or adolescents face or children face that are sort of external to themselves. So they contrast with internalizing behaviors like anxiety or depression um, and are more related to things that have to do with social difficulties, school failure, or persistent deviance. Um, And we tend to see that externalizing behaviors that are related to delinquency or to uh, substance use, like normatively increase sort of at the onset of adolescence and then continue to increase for at least a subset of youth over the course of adolescence. And that's why we're really interested in this time period. So what's happening to externalizing behaviors um, during adolescence. Right, right. I do remember, I think there's this common assumption about how teenagers being quite rebellious during that age. Yeah. You say those are kind of maybe is a way that externalizing behaviors is like represented. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely one of them. I think uh, there is sort of this really common conception that adolescence is this time of storm and stress where you might have as a parent, a teenager, for example, that starts to maybe talk back to you or disagree with you a little bit more. Um, And I'll say that, first of all, like these conceptions of storm and stress have generally been overstated. Like we find that a lot of adolescents, you know, don't report feeling some of these like really typical, like maybe media presentations of adolescence. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we do see some of these increases. Uh, and those are in particular related to increases in substance use. So maybe drinking or experimenting with alcohol or marijuana or cigarette use. They could also be sort of related to some 
deviant or delinquent behaviors. So maybe skipping school, uh, for example. Uh, and they could also be sort of related to maybe that idea about like talking back or maybe being disrespectful that uh, some parents report from their adolescents, right? From their teenagers. Right. Uh, so that idea that like maybe they're like a little bit more defiant. Right. Interesting. And those are all like normal. It's like kind of normal to start experiencing increases in these things. So we are really interested in sort of how they're manifesting from day to day. Got it. Yeah. As a former rebellious teenager myself, I yeah. have to say it's quite reassuring to hear that this is something normal that every a lot of adolescents go through. Um, and maybe the next question that I have pertains to the title is about the usage of inhibitory control. So um, I know not every audience members might be familiar with this concept. So I wonder if you can explain it a little bit, like what does it mean? And why is it like a kind of a valuable lens into externalizing behavior. So inhibitory control, generally and at its most basic level, is the ability to, to stop yourself from saying the first thing that pops into your head. So we say like the ability to suppress this prepotent response in favor of one that is um, more goal-oriented or more favorable for you. Um, and as you can imagine, like the ability to control yourself or stop yourself from doing like the very first thing you want to do is essential to a wide range of outcomes and behaviors. Uh, so inhibitory control is implicated in our academic success, right? The ability to choose to study for an exam versus going out uh, with your friends. Inhibitory control is also related to like a wide range of externalizing behaviors, so the ability to sort of stop yourself from saying the first thing that comes to your mind, from doing the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, and we often measure that like in the lab or with like children and adolescents using sort of a wide range of, of tasks. And one of them and the one of this particular study is the Stroop Color Word Task, which is a really, really well-known um, psychological experiment in which adolescents are presented this color word. For example, the word green, and the font that that word is in is blue. And they're asked to say, like, oh, what is the font color? They're supposed to say blue, but their initial reaction is always say green. So we measure, like, whether they can actually stop or halt that prepotent response and say the correct answer. And we notice that inhibitory control really changes across the lifespan, especially in like childhood and adolescence. So as we age, as we move from being a child to an adolescent to adult, our ability to sort of gain control over our initial impulses increases. So in childhood, it might be hard to stop ourselves from doing the first thing that comes to our mind, from saying the first thing we think. But then as we reach adolescence, as we begin to grow, and as we gain new and more experiences, uh, we start to be able to stop ourselves from saying the first thing that comes to our mind, right? We stop, we, we start to be able to like weigh consequences and decide on favorable actions. And inhibitory control is like one really basic way of getting at that idea or measuring that concept. Right, got it. That makes a lot of sense. And since you mentioned the use of this Stroop task, I do remember that um, 
even in my Coxi, like intro to Coxi class that I took undergrad, that was the almost like the most robust finding you can get that you can get just like undergrad in class to do it. And everybody seems to show this like very strong effects. But I guess I'm also wondering that um, to what extent that the, the phenomenon that we are measuring that particular task is actually related to, for example, inhibiting the impulse to say like curse words or do things that you shouldn't be doing because in some way it feels like the task itself is like very basic in a way that seems to just like about the color. And when we are making decisions in the real world, like we need to think about a lot of things and sometimes people rationalize about the action that they shouldn't probably be taking. So I'm just kind of curious about the um, how the effects that's being measured in that task it generalize to real world scenarios? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, this is a question a lot of researchers in general, and in particular, adolescent researchers have had before. How do these um, neuropsychological tasks that are measuring what we think you're brain or behavior is doing like in the lab, how do they actually correlate with your behavior in real life? And we find that that really varies. So I don't have a straightforward answer for you. Uh, performance on a task like the Stroop, uh, which if you really think about it, is just asking you to like make a decision as quickly as you can, is more highly correlated with maybe your academic performance. Hmm. Um and that could be because we give this strooped task in a way that's very similar to how we might give a test, right? We right. Uh, give tests in very tightly controlled environments where everyone is quiet. We're all focused on our own work. And that's almost in a way like very similar to how we might administer the stroop. We bring someone into a lab. We have them sit down. We make sure it's quiet or we give them headphones. They're asked to focus really specifically on the task at hand. Um, but we know that like behaviors or experiences that youth have like in the real world are not very clear cut, right? They're, right? We're not asking them to make decisions about fonts and colors. We're actually asking them to make really complicated decisions. And usually there is like an aspect of like, how do I feel that day? Like, did I just get into a fight with my parents or my friends? Did I eat breakfast this morning? Did I sleep well? Those are all things that actually play a role in how our inhibitory control operates, right? Like, right. maybe we didn't sleep well, and then maybe we'd miss breakfast, and then maybe my sister, like, pinched me in the car before I got out of school. <laughs> and if all of those, like, terrible things happened to me, Maybe I can't resist or maybe I just don't have the capacity or resources to resist like this first response that comes out of my mouth. That's actually a little bit of what we're trying to capture in the study, because we said instead of just bringing someone into the lab and measuring their inhibitory control uh, via this lab task like once and then saying, that generalizes across all situations and all times. Like how you did on that one task is then indicative of your inhibitory control generally. We instead said, what if we send you home and uh, then send you a little like survey to do every day? And in this study, they did that survey every day for 100 days. And each day we measured their inhibitory control with an adapted Stroop color word task. 
And we're hoping to get just a little bit more close to what their behavior might be like on a day-to-day basis. So that says, in your everyday life, when you do this task, what is your inhibitory control like? We don't think we're quite there, right? We're still sort of abstracting um, inhibitory control to like words and colors, but we're getting a little bit closer by measuring it many, many times, like in situ or in the real world. Right. Thank you so much. And I think that's a pretty great segue to my next question, which is, is in the title, there's like 100 days of adolescence. And that's a lot of data. And that's very inspiring. So I guess my question is, how did you manage to get 100 days of data? Because I know you mentioned briefly that you send them survey every day. But I guess I'm also wondering, where did you find these like dedicated teenagers that just wanted to do something for 100 days, which I bet is probably very challenging? Yeah, so this study was the, the brainchild and really led by Dr. Adrienne Belts over at the University of Michigan, where I worked as a postdoc. And she does a lot of really phenomenal work with daily diary studies because she's really interested in sort of person-specific effects or effects that are really relevant to an individual. And to do those types of analyses and to sort of understand how effects are similar or different across individuals, you need to collect a lot of data. And she has developed just like a really great set of procedures to recruit and run these types of studies. And I will... uh, I will say that it takes quite a bit of person power. So there is also a phenomenal lab manager who helps recruit from the surrounding communities. It takes quite a bit of money (laughs) to sort of incentivize participants to complete like 100 days or as many days of data collection as you could get. Um, There is potentially an issue with who is actually willing to complete those studies, right? Right. Like, as you said, like, it's a dedicated person who will complete 100 days of data collection. And there are ways around that, right? So, like, maybe you don't send them a very long survey. Maybe you send them a very brief survey every day. And participation or completion will generally be higher because it's easier to fill out a one-minute survey than a five- or ten-minute survey. There are also things you can do regarding what data you collect. There's like a lot of really uh, fantastic work happening in like the passive sensing literature, or a lot of this is like kind of been spearheaded by folks who are interested in sleep, for example. Uh, You could have people wear actigraph watches or maybe collect data from their phones or ask participants to let you collect or scrape their phones for some of this data. Um, And with all of these sort of techniques, there are drawbacks, right? Uh, So if you ask a really short survey, like maybe you're not getting enough information on things that you might be interested in. If you're collecting passive sensing data, you have to worry about sort of the quality of that data, the devices you're using. There are absolutely privacy concerns with what kind of data you're picking up. Um, So this is a really complicated Uh, field. And it's, I think, still emerging, really. There's a lot of really great work to be done in this realm and figuring out sort of better and better and like less intrusive and less burdensome ways to collect this data will just help us open up the samples we're able to get to diversify them, to make them larger, 
um, and to make them more accessible. Right. Thank you so much for explaining all of these trade-offs that researchers need to think about when they are making these decisions about the type of data they want to collect and the way they are collecting. So you mentioned that um, what you did was to send surveys to these teenagers every single day for 100 days. And you mentioned that you, the, the survey contains an adaptive version of Stroop Task. So I'm kind of curious if you can say more about how did you adapt this Stroop Task to be compatible with um, the goal of your work? And for every single day, the survey, do the teenagers also do something else? So what, what are some other kind of data that you can collect from these amazing samples? Yeah, um, so specifically for this inhibitory control measure, we adapted the Stroop color word because the, the most typical way that it's assessed is that you see that sort of color word, the word red, and it's printed in either like a congruent ink, so the word red printed in red ink, or incongruent ink, the word red printed in green ink. And then you're asked to click the answer that corresponds with uh, the color. And typically in the lab, what we do is use some sort of subtraction method where we take like the average reaction time of a congruent task and subtract that from the average reaction time of the incongruent task under the assumption that you're going to be slower when the color and the word don't match. And how much slower you are is an indicator of your inhibitory control. Right. And that method ha is very popular and is used in a ton of different studies, but it's really, really hard to implement well in a daily diary study. And that is because in the original method, you can bring someone into a lab, you can set them up on a computer, that computer will be hardwired to the internet, and you'll be using some sort of device that can very accurately capture their reaction time. But... If you're just like sending them a survey for them to take on their phone, you may or may not have ac access to a device with sort of like sophisticated timing mechanisms that can right. capture like reaction time really well. There are also maybe some like emerging issues with how well those reaction time metrics uh, generalize. So um, like how effective they are by your daily experiences or how sleepy or how like how you're feeling that day, really. Yeah. Um, so what we did instead was um, we just gave them a timed task. So we said you have 45 seconds. On this page, uh, select as many or answer as many trials as you can. And they were all sort of incongruent. So, and we used like the sum score, how many they got correct as their measure of inhibitory control. Oh. And I, I think in general... The type of data you can collect in a daily diary study is really limited only by your imagination and your sort of perseverance, right? So we collected, or the purpose of the study was really to look at daily experiences uh, of youth. So we collected a couple of cognitive assessments. We asked them quite a few questions about their schooling and sort of their affect and mood, but you could have asked almost really anything that you could expect to potentially vary on from a day-to-day -day basis. So I've seen like lots of great studies on health behaviors from day-to-day. -day. Uh, so like whether you drink today, whether 
how much you drink, where you drink. Um, you could also ask about sort of social behaviors, like who did you talk to today? How did they make you feel? Um, and all sorts of like physical behaviors as well, right? Like, did you exercise? How long did you exercise? How much sleep did you get? Um, so there is sort of lots to explore in the space. I see. Wow, that sounds amazing. And one thing I didn't quite catch when I was reading the paper was that this survey was done over phone. And I think that was just like something that's really, I think, not something that I encounter a lot of times in doing my own work. So in our lab, we do a lot of online experiments, but most of them require participants to sit in front of a laptop. And I wonder if you can say more about the selections of using phone as a medium to like finish this survey. And a, a kind of a related question that has been kind of lurking in my mind is, I, I guess there are a lot of discussions about how phone is in particular like a distractor for teenagers. And do you think by asking them to finish this like very attention-related task on their phone, could, could it have kind of some unintended consequences? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question. So uh, we were we were pretty explicit that uh, the surveys had to be completed on an internet capable device. So that could be a laptop, that could be a phone, it could be a tablet. Um, and this was to get sort of the widest range of people in our study. Um, and we we asked them like sort of what device are you taking us on, uh, and we checked. And first, I'll say that surprisingly, it was pretty it was um, pretty split across uh, the sample. Like there were a large chunk of folks doing it on the laptop. There was a large chunk of folks doing it on a phone. Um, there wasn't sort of one. I I personally had thought most of our youth would do it on a phone, but there seemed to be pretty evenly split. Um, and it didn't seem to matter, like their, their scores on this, um, inhibitory control test didn't seem to really differ by what device they were doing it on. But to your point of like, well, if they're doing it on their phone, could they have been feeling distracted? Could that have mattered? Um, I think that's, I think that's probably true, but I also think it's probably a piece of what we were trying to capture in this hopefully maybe more realistic measure. Right. Of their cognition, um, maybe trying to capture a little bit of, of of their environment. And, you know, youth and we all live in environments where our phones ding or go off or push a notification to us that interrupts our thoughts. Right. Like as we're talking, my phone is going <laughs> off <laughs> and I can't help myself. I keep like looking down to be like, what what's happening? <laughs> uh, so I think it's also just realistic that we um, we don't think or act in a world that's free from distractions anyway. Um, so there might be something about how we take these or do these tasks in the lab that is in some ways like more constrained or not as realistic as how we might do them at home. Right. In some ways, it sounds like doing it over phone might be even more ecologically valid because this <laughs> is how they they spend a significant chunk of their time. Um, so now that we have spent quite some time talking about the method, I'm pretty sure a lot of people would like to hear what did you find. So yeah, what was the 
biggest finding you had from this line of work? And is there anything that particularly surprising to you? Yeah. So the goal of the paper, there were, the goal of the paper was twofold. The first goal was to sort of validate this novel inhibitory control task. And we did generally find the task was reliable and valid. So uh, it operated similarly from day to day to day. And it was correlated with sort of other measures of inhibitory control and cognition in ways that we would expect. Uh, so for example, um, it had low but significant correlation with like working memory and sort of other measures and self-reported measures of inhibitory control. And if you look across age, like it seemed as if inhibitory control was increasing with age, which also we would expect. So we're very excited that the measure seems reliable and valid. We hope that other folks will, will use it as well in their studies so we can build like a corpus of data with this measure. Um, the second thing we looked at um, was links to externalizing behavior. Um, and here we looked at both averages. So like from all 100 days, if we collapse that into one score, like was your average across 100 days inhibitory control associated with your reported sort of impulsive behaviors? And the second thing we looked at was like your fluctuations. So uh, were you from day to day to day sort of reporting around the same inhibi inhibitory control? So like, was your score on this task very, very similar to itself from day to day to day? And then we also looked at like whether you were experiencing large fluctuations. So for some folks, they might be like really similar to themselves, but other folks might have days where they're almost like wildly different. And we sort of captured that in this measure called an intra-individual standard deviation, where a number is sort of very close to zero suggests that you're experiencing minimal fluctuation and larger numbers suggest you're experiencing like larger fluctuation from day to day to day. And we found that um, both average sort of inhibitory control was related to in impulsive behaviors, but also in sort of novel in the study, it's not just averages, but your fluctuations. So folks or kids who experience more fluctuations from day to day to day, their inhibitory control is changing more across time. They also reported more impulsive behaviors. Hmm. Um, I think that's one unique finding that you can't really get at in a sort of a typical cross-sectional study. We usually measure inhibitory control once, but here we're saying it's not just your average inhibitory control, it might also be that, or it might, the way that it fluctuates or changes from day to day to day might also provide some unique information. Got it. That is fascinating. Let me make sure if I get this right. So it's not just the average, basically like how on average individuals like inhibitory control, which is I think more closely similar to the results from an in-lab test that those are the cases yeah. we want to claim about average. It's not those, just those that are connected to their impulsive behaviors, but also for folks who show greater fluctuations, they also show greater impulsive behaviors. Is that a finding? Yes, exactly. Oh, and I think like understanding what those fluctuations mean is mm -hmm. sort of like one big next step. 
Mm-hmm. So are adolescents who experience more fluctuations, are they also more likely to live in more chaotic environments? Right. Are they just more susceptible to environmental changes, like getting less sleep that day or experiencing more stress? Um, but understanding that, so how those fluctuations are like linked to everyday experiences um, is really like the next big step, because clearly something about those fluctuations is explaining something in impulsive behaviors. Right. I forgot if you mentioned this, but um, is the impulsive behavior measures also something that you were able to capture the fluctuation or is that kind of an average measure? Um, We did both. Uh, For this study and this paper, we use that average standard measure that we assess in like an intake. Mm -hmm. But... um, We also capture that information from day to day, similar to the IC measure. And so in future work, you could look at how these two things are co-vary over the 100 days. Right. Got it. Um, And another thing that I noticed when I was reading the paper is that there were quite a few teenagers who dropped out. So I'm wondering, so I can imagine in my head that there might be some people who just like fluctuates too much and they just can't bring themselves to do the task. So in a way, do you think it is possible that um, the relationship that's being captured here might just might be kind of partly explained by the fact that some like the the extreme ends have been cut? I don't know if this question makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is always a concern that we have uh, what I'll call sort of differential attrition mm-hmm. or attrition for a particular reason. Um, and it, and, and what we found was that um, sort of like adolescents who didn't complete the study were not different from those who did, but we then excluded some folks for additional reasons. Um, and they, they did report sort of, and the excluded folks did report fewer impulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sorry, it's the opposite of that. The excluded folks reported more impulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. So yes, this is like a, this is an issue sort of inherent to these daily diary designs. You see this in like substance use work as well, that um, if you are sort of capturing data from people who are drinking alcohol, is it not likely that on days in which they drink alcohol, they forget to fill out their daily survey Um, because they're drinking. Um, So this is sort of a, this is a tricky problem. Um, And there are many ways to think about or attempt to handle it. Uh, The first is that this was a community sample. So we didn't specifically recruit for uh, those with externalizing behaviors. And these types of studies generally need to be uh, replicated using sort of clinically relevant measures and using clinical samples um, because they may also have utility for clinical interventions and clinical work generally. Um, The second is kind of how I mentioned that you could adapt this to be shorter, briefer, or in ways more accessible, especially for those who might be more impulsive or have worse inhibitory control generally and are thus, therefore, less likely to do the study. 
those all have trade-offs because when the study is shorter or, for example, when you don't have as long a time series, right. you might not be able to get some of the really interesting sort of nuanced um, inferences that you can make with a long time series and right. a longer survey. Awesome. Thank you so much for this very informative answer. Um, so now that we have this like amazing assessment tool. I'm kind of curious about moving forward. Uh, what are some future directions that are on your mind? Like what are some other things that you can do with this amazing data set and tool? Yeah, I think one thing that I'm really interested in is in adolescent cognition generally, but also in how that cognition changes across adolescents. So I think there could be really interesting work done on learning and how learning in adolescence is different from learning in childhood or in adulthood. Those types of questions could be like, are well suited to potentially like a daily diary study. So to look at how you learn this task or learn to do this task or optimize your score on this task over time, and whether that's different at different points of the lifespan could be really interesting. Um, I think that there are sort of many sort of personalized studies that can be done with daily diary studies. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think clinical science really has this like rich history of examining sort of externalizing behaviors like via like ecological momentary assessments. Um and some of that has been done from measuring like individuals during interventions, um, which I think really sort of paves a path forward for individualized or tailored or even adaptive treatments. Um, and cognitive assessments could be brought into that as well. Um, and I think like there are there are sort of many things in general and adolescents that are well established at the between person level. Mm -hmm. So at the between person level, uh, it seems like, for example, sleep can affect your cognition. Right. Um, and that's just like one example, but I think there's sort of some mixed or contradictory, uh, evidence at the within person level. So mm -hmm. like for this individual, is it that their sleep affects their cognition or is it something about their cognition potentially affecting their sleep? Um, and I think getting sort of closer and closer to the individual is a really important thing we can do with these long time series and these sort of uh, intensive cognitive assessments. We can do a better job at understanding like for whom, when, and how um, like different behaviors and cognitions are affecting each other. Right. Those are sounds like such an amazing directions moving forward. I'm very excited to read them in the futures. Um, so yes. before we break, I would like to ask you kind of your personal journey into this research questions. So how did you become interested in studying adolescence? I, I am, a, I'm also in developmental psychology. And I think what brought me in initially was that I'm just fascinated by language and language learning seems to be a great topic to studies in infancies. So that's how yeah. I got in. So I'm kind of curious about how did you become interested in studying this period? Yeah. 
I have always loved working with children. And when I went to college, I was like, let me figure out what I can do that will let me work with children for as long as possible. (laughs) And so I became a teacher (laughs) because of that. Um, And because I had a uh, science degree, I ended up teaching middle school, which was not my first preference. I wanted to teach like kindergarten, but I ended up teaching middle school and I just became fascinated by this stage of the lifespan, right? I think it's inherently curious to people um, because they think back about their own sort of adolescence and they kind of like, sometimes they kind of like, oh, right. But But when you talk to sort of middle schoolers and high schoolers. And when you work with them closely, you start to gain this like different perspective. Um, And I really think that working with them for a couple of years uh, before going to grad school really changed my opinions on what I wanted to study. Um, So so generally I study sort of like how the experience of puberty is associated with like cognition and health outcomes. And I think that's really driven by all these like wonderful conversations I had with middle schoolers and high schoolers while I was teaching. Um, and that le- really leads me to like sort of want to bring in their experiences and their day-to-day lives into our research in sort of like a more meaningful way. Right. I didn't know that there's this personal component to this. Um, and thank you so much for sharing. And I have to say, I'm kind of curious to see if I know you are an assistant professor now, so you need to teach college students. Maybe that will kind of change your interest once again, because I feel like even as a grad student, when I was interacting with undergrad, it was sometimes very amazing in terms of what they think about and how they go about it. So yeah, absolutely. I tell my students all the time, like I have the privilege of of teaching you about a little bit, hopefully about yourselves in some way. (laughs) Amazing. Um, so I wanted to thank you again for joining on the show. And I, once again, look forward to reading more about your works in the future. Great. Thank you so much. It was great to be on.